Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin reading again in verse number 1 here in just a moment. As we think about the birth of our Lord, um, I would like to report to you that on Thursday, Grace and I had uh, our very first baby appointment and an ultrasound. And they were fairly confident. They said, we can't say for sure until week 20, we're at week 12, but I am amazed at how the technology of ultrasounds has improved and advanced. And from what it appears, we're going to have a little girl. Aww. And I'm... We're really happy about that, aren't we? Praise the Lord. So, we'll just wanted to give you that announcement. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, remember we focused on that word behold at the end of last week's message. It's a term of surprise, uh, still shaking his head 20 years After Jesus had ascended, 50 years after the events that he's describing, Matthew, the human penman of the gospel, is still shaking his head, if you would, in surprise and awe of these wise men who demonstrated the priority of worship. And as Gentiles, being the first Gentiles to worship the incarnate Christ... They traveled the hundreds of miles that they did. They faced the dangers that they did. They gave the diligence that they did and demonstrated and modeled for us the devotion that they did to show us how we should prioritize worship. As we combine the theme of worship and of Christ and Christmas, we're going to learn another lesson, get some more guidance from these wise men today. And so Matthew writes, they came in the days of Herod the king, behold, There came wise men from the east, Babylon, Persia area, modern-day Iraq or Iran. There came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And remember, it wasn't just a one-time question. The indication is that they just started as soon as they came into Jerusalem asking, Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? And at first it must have been like, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Pardon me, from one person to the next, to the next they would go... And you can imagine as the nervousness and the fear mounted because people had lived under the reign, the dreadful reign of King Herod, who was not a born king that these men were searching, but was a usurping appointed king by Rome. So they begin asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. And then here is the statement from which we'll launch this morning and are come to worship him. And so as we consider further this subject of worshiping Christ at Christmas, last week we considered the 
wise men modeling for us the priority of worship. But this morning, I want us to consider how they also, in their experience, demonstrate to us, most of us Gentiles, who, if you're not a worshiper of Christ, you should be. Okay. But here, they demonstrate for us the prophet of worship. When I mentioned this title to the family this week, one of my children, I'll not mention which one, said prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. I said, no, 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 prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. In the sense of the benefits of worship. Now, this is not a message on worship this morning in the sense of defining what worship is. We've talked about this in the past, that worship is the act of ascribing worth or value to something or to an individual. One man that I read about this past week said that worship is the act that develops feelings, get this, that develops emotions. It's the act that develops feelings or emotions. In other words, the act of worship precedes the emotions versus a feeling that is expressed in an act. Can I tell you that's a very important order? There's a lot of emotionalism out there that goes under the name of worship, but it starts with a person's subjective feelings. Instead of an acknowledging through the act of worship, an acknowledging of who God is and His worth, and then may I say this, feelings, emotions follow that. And so this is not a message on worship in the sense of defining what it is. However, let me just briefly say this here at the outset, uh, that the Bible distinguishes between real worship and counterfeit worship. Jesus himself said in John chapter number 4 that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit. If you're going to worship God, you do it in spirit and in truth. Spirit, in the sense of it's not primarily external. Okay, It's not ritual. It begins in the heart. And then in truth, according to the truth of who God is. And the Bible warns about counterfeit forms of worship. Leviticus chapter 10, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire, alien fire. That is a sacrifice that was not according to God's direction. They offered it and God took it very seriously and took those two young men's lives. So worship is a serious thing. It needs to be real in our lives. Worship is regulated by the Bible. Guidelines are given as to what is biblical worship and what is counterfeit worship. I would say this according to Matthew chapter number 4. Worship, our worship is to be reserved for God alone. When Satan tempted the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus said it is written, worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Worship according to Hebrews 13 is to be reverent. We are to serve God with reverence and godly fear. And so there's to be a reverence to our worship. However, it's not a kind of reverence that excludes rejoicing. Psalm chapter number 100, one of my favorite worship passages in the Old Testament, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pastures. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. So biblical worshiping will produce rejoicing. Through the wise men, 
We learn the importance, however, and I want us to consider this this morning, of the profit of worship. That is, benefits that God has designed, has attached to biblical worship that we can expect. These wise men, when they came showing the priority of worship, traveling the hundreds of miles that they did from the east, and bringing with them their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it's fascinating to me that though these wise men left behind at the feet of baby Jesus a small fortune, we can say that they left far richer than they came because they had found Jesus. They left far richer than they came. And it's a testimony to the fact that there are tremendous profit or benefits that God is attached to worship. Now, when God commands us to worship Him, and people have struggled over this, there are unbelievers, well, non unbelievers, who've eventually come to faith in Christ, but one of the hurdles that they had to overcome is that from our limited, our finite human perspective, it seems something of narcissism to command others to worship you. Okay. But let me just say this God is not a man. Okay. He is not a narcissist in commanding us to worship Him only. Why? Because worship, by definition, is drawing near to the Lord. It is entering into His presence. And the psalmist David said this in Psalm 16, In His presence there is fullness of joy, and there are many pleasures at His right hand. God commands us to worship Him because He knows it's best for us to be worshipers. To enter into his presence. I think about Psalm 22 and verse number 3. Just a simple statement there. But a profound one as well. The psalmist said that the Lord inhabiteth the praises of his people. When we praise him. When we worship him. He draws near to us. As we draw near to him. Sounds like a verse from James 4 doesn't it? Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. It is to our benefit. It is not mercenary for us to worship for the benefits that come with it. It is not narcissist for him to command us to worship because he knows of the benefit that comes when we worship him in humility and spirit and truth. And so we're commanded to come into the Lord's presence, whether it is corporately or privately. All of our lives should be characterized by living in the presence of the Lord. And so I want us to consider the benefits of it. The benefit of worship is it is modeled in the lives of these wise men. I want us to understand this morning that you and I should be committed in growing worshipers of Christ because of the wonderful profit, the benefits that God has attached to the act of worship. There are certain plants that thrive in the sun. Do we call those plants mercenary when we set them in the sun and they thrive? It's the way things are supposed to be. And God has made tremendous benefits that he's attached to worship. And when you and I are in the presence of the sun, we will experience those benefits. I want us to consider in pretty rapid succession this morning, several that we see either directly stated or implied in this Matthew 2 account, verses 1 through 12, of the wise men and how, again, they picture for us important aspects of worship. The first is this. 
when we give ourselves to worship, I want you to understand a first benefit is that it leads to the answers to the tough questions of life. These wise men ask the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And from a heart of worship, they're looking for the answer to this question, and they got the answer. What are the great questions of life that people ask as they wrestle through the purpose of existence? We have often seen and understood that man's questions can be summarized in three great questions. The first is, where did we come from? Let me just take a little sideline here and say... You did not come from a monkey. I was astounded to stand in that ultrasound room. And after it had been so many years, to stand there again and at 12 weeks distinctly on that screen see little fingers. Listen, that little baby is only two inches long right now. Two inches long, distinctly seeing the fingers. When the head turned, distinctly seeing the profile, I'm really glad the baby looks like Grace. (laughs) Distinctly seeing the profile at one point, seeing from the back and noticing two ears. This baby is 12 weeks old, seeing the little feet and the legs. At one point, the ultrasound tech goes, would you look at that femur? And sure enough, clear as a bell. Now, it looked about this long on that screen, but a little femur. You think about a two-inch long baby and the ability to see the femur in its leg clearly and distinctly. To see the little toes on its feet. To watch at one point that little five-fingered, sorry, four-fingered, one-thumbed hand pull up to that mouth. And the mouth opened and that little hand flowed around that mouth. Let me just tell you something. That didn't just happen. Okay. Say, Pastor, you're a little admin. I know I got some skin in the game. But more than that, more than that, the psalmist makes it clear we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. I'm, I'm telling you what, here we were in a room humming with technology, and I felt like we were on holy ground. Okay. Where did we come from? Do you know why I can have that perspective? Because I'm learning every day more and more the God of the Bible. Okay. So worship leads to the big answers to the big questions of life. Why am I here? Where am I going when I leave here? Listen, you attach your life to the only one who is worthy of worship, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the answers about your, the questions about your future are answered. And we just quoted Psalm 100. I can illustrate it simply in this way. You remember in past we've defined the word worship as to lick the hand. And it's a picture of a lap dog. Okay, not a farm dog, a lap dog. Now, I've seen plenty of farm dogs that model worship, but it literally, the word worship in the New Testament is to lick the hand, and it is a picture of a dog worshiping its master. And that's the word that God chose to illustrate how we should regard him. Okay? We'll let God define the word, okay? Worship. 
And I think about this. I'm not, okay, confession. I'm not a dog person. Not. So I'm surprised still, six years later, that we have a dog living in our house. But I'm telling you what, God has taught me, even though I don't have a close, close relationship with Loretta, that's the dog. God has taught me so many lessons about worship by watching Loretta, get this, worship Elena. And here's what I was thinking about this week. You know, all the big questions in a dog's life are answered because she worships Elena. Follow the illustration? It's amazing. I'm like, we, we're all chopped liver. Actually, we're not, because if we were, she'd want us really bad. Okay. <laughs> but we're all nothing in comparison to how Loretta views Elena. We walk in the house, coming back from a family trip, we walk in the house, and she's looking past all of us. Where's Elena? She doesn't have to answer the question, where am I going to sleep at night? That's answered because of who she worships. She's going to be where Elena is. She doesn't really have to answer. It's already answered for her the question of, how am I going to spend my day? It's already answered. I'm just going to spend it. Wherever Elena is, that's where I'm going to be or as close as I can be. What am I going to eat today? That question's answered. Elena will take care of that. I don't have to worry about it. Now, sometimes dad has to remind Elena When we come home and Elena's not with us and she's not there, she just kind of looks, and she mopes. She's got her little spot in the big window on the downside of the house that's coming up the street. And when we come in or when she's wondering where Elena is, she gets, she'll prop herself up there and she'll be, where's Elena? Get this. Everything about her existence, the questions of existence, the questions of purpose, all of the questions are answered by Worshiping Elena. And I want you to notice a benefit that God is attached to worship, and that is this. When you worship Christ, it answers all the big questions of life. I want you to notice, secondly, another benefit is that it gives us purpose. It's a clear statement of purpose these wise men make in verse number 2. We are come hundreds of miles through dangerous Territory, all of the difficulty, the preparation, we are come for one purpose. To do what? To worship Him. We are come to worship Him. Worshiping the Lord has the benefit attached to it, that it gives purpose. It again, going back to the first point, it answers that question, why am I here? You are here for Jesus. By the way, He came for you. gives us purpose when it comes to worshiping the king, to following the king, to proclaiming the king. Matthew 6.33, if you know it, say it with me. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things should be added unto you. He is the king. We worship him. Aren't you glad nothing perturbs him? When Herod got troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. But let me tell you something. There is nothing as it relates to the circumstances of this life that are ever going to trouble King Jesus. Okay. 
Though hand join in hand, and though the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing, none of that troubles Jesus. The king said, yet have I set my king. The father said, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So our purpose, what is the king's plan? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a great statement of purpose that determines purpose. I want you to notice a third benefit that comes from worshiping. Not only that it leads to the answers to the big questions of life, not only that it gives us purpose in a world where so many people seem aimless or settle for lesser purposes, but I want you to notice a third benefit that is ours when we worship the Lord Jesus Christ and we see it in the life of these wise men. Worshiping Christ and being motivated by that has the ability to stir others up who need to be worshiping the Lord. Now, it wasn't a good stirring up that took place in Herod or in the people of Jerusalem. But I want to ask you this question. Have you been stirred up as you think about the wise men and their worship? 2,000 years later, the example of these... I mean, we sing songs about them. We three kings of Orient are. You say, how do you know there were three? I don't. We assume there were three because there were three gifts. By the way, Isaiah 60 indicates that they were on camels. You can read that later on. We may look at it at some point. Isaiah 60, 1 to 5. But when these men came, it stirred Jerusalem up. And by the way, Jerusalem needed stirred up. I think about the impact, not only that it's had on us 2,000 years later, as our heart is stirred to think of the way that these wise men modeled making a priority of worship. We sing about them. I think about how it must have impacted Joseph and Mary. When Jesus is now a toddler, and here into poor Bethlehem come these three or however many wise men on camels from the east. And bringing these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and falling down on their faces. How do you think that impacted Joseph and Mary? Here's Herod that was troubled. Jerusalem was apathetic in many cases. The scribes and the chief priests were. The world of Rome was going about its own business. And yet, God used these Gentile wise men to stir people up. And 2,000 years later, we're still being stirred up. Now, it doesn't mean that we agitate in a carnal way. My freshman year of Bible college, I was in a quartet with the college. And there was a guy in the quartet who was a great big guy, 320 pounds. He was national champion wrestler his junior year of high school. He had a great bass voice. He was in that male quartet. We traveled all over. He and I were also roommates my freshman year of Bible college. He had trouble staying awake during preaching. And I'll never forget what he said to me. And he, he was embarrassed about it. He said to me one day, he said, Nathan, he goes, you got to help me with this. He said, you got to do something to help keep me awake. Because he was embarrassed about falling asleep. I'm, I'm not kidding you. We'd sit down and within two minutes of the message starting, the head would start to go down like this. 
And so I'm a farm boy. I carry a jackknife in my pocket all the time. He said, I don't care what you got to do. Do something to stir me up, keep me awake. So I opened that jackknife and I laid it on the pew between us. The first time he started dozing off, I took that knife and I just poked him in the leg with it like that. And he woke up. He woke up angry. I'm not sure that it helped enhance his worship any. The difference between sleeping and missing worship or being angry, I'm not sure he profited much. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about genuine worship, sincere worship, biblical worship. And you don't have to be talented in order to do that. It's a tremendous blessing to look back in my own memory to trips to foreign fields. I can mention one in particular, the island of Ponape and the Micronesian Islands in the South Seas. Privilege I had in 2006 to travel with some friends to look at the ministry of Rickson Keeling over there. I'll never forget one night, Rickson said, we're, we're going to go up and have a service up in the mountains in the interior of the island in a village. And he told us this for truth. He said, a village where you three, my, myself, my pastor, and one of the guys that was with us, you three will be the third, fourth, and fifth white men to ever step foot in that village. And I'll never forget the drive and then an hour hike in in the dark and then getting there. And they had a meal set out for us. It was a great sacrifice for them. No chairs in the meeting room where these believers gathered. We all sat on the floor. They did have a guitar. And I am still moved by the impact of a group of comparatively primitive believers worshiping who didn't have anything like we have in America except they knew the Lord. Okay. And so a benefit of worship is it stirs others up. It leads to answers to life's biggest questions, gives us purpose in life, stirs others up. I notice fourthly that biblical worship, when we commit ourselves to it, it deepens our understanding of Scripture too. We've talked about this last week and I'll mention it again this morning. We have no idea what Scriptures, Old Testament Scriptures, these men would have had access to that would have helped to send them on their journey in addition to seeing the phenomenon of the star. Did they know about Balaam's prophecy that a star would rise out of Jacob? Did they know about Jacob's prophecy that the scepter would not depart from Judah? Did they know about Isaiah's prophecy that a king would be, a son would be born, a, a child would be born, a son given, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace? And of his kingdom there would be no end and the government would be on his shoulder. Did they know about that? Did they know about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27 that at a very specifically designated time in Israel's history that Messiah the Prince would come and then he would be cut off but not for himself. He would be cut off for his people. Did they know that God in Isaiah 60 had prophesied that kings and nobility would come on camels bringing gold and frankincense as a gift. Did they know that? We won't know till we get to heaven. But I know this, that with a dedicated heart to worship, to find Christ and worship Him, 
once they got to Jerusalem, and yes, it was through the apathetic answer of the chief priests and scribes, but one thing's for sure, when they were motivated in their worship, they get to Jerusalem and they ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And the chief priests and scribes, in answer to Herod's questions, give them a pinpointed prophecy from Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Israel, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler of my people Israel. And what I notice is, is that their commitment to worship deepened their understanding of Scripture. They went from a star, get this, to Scripture, to the Savior. May I tell you that's one of the tests of real versus counterfeit worship? Whatever worship a person is involved in, does it lead them to a deeper understanding of the Scriptures? To a deeper understanding of the God of the Bible? If it is simply an emotional, external exercise that does not deepen and edify the Christian life, there is serious question as to whether or not it is real worship. Because one of the marks of real worship is that it deepens. One of the benefits of real worship is that it deepens. This is why, listen, let me just, and I'm not saying that there aren't good songs that can be written by present day, to use the term generally, contemporary songwriters. But there's a lot of shallow that goes on in a lot of the newer songs that are written. You look back at the hymns that are the foundation of local church worship the sum and the substance, the core, the foundation, and you'll find that many of them were written by men who were theologians, men who knew the Bible, men who knew the Lord, and may I say ladies too, like Elizabeth Clefane and Fanny Crosby and others. There's a lot of shallow out there nowadays. I read this week about a farmer that left his farm. He had business in the big city and it required him to be there for the weekend. And he went to a big city church and that big city church was experiencing with mixing in some of the praise choruses. So he came home after the weekend to his wife and she said, so what did you think about uh, going to that big city church? And he said, well, they were starting in with some of those praise choruses. And she said, praise choruses. He said, yeah, as opposed to hymns. She said, what do you mean? He said, well, let me put it to you this way. A hymn is just simply stating the truth of the Lord. And this would be a hymn. Martha, he called his wife's name, the cows are in the corn. Just stating the truth. But he said these praise choruses, they would go like this. Martha, Martha, oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. Oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the cows, the cows. The black ones and the brown ones and the white ones and the green ones and the yellow, the cows, the cows, the cows are there. Oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. They're in the corn, the corn, the corn, Martha. They're in the corn. <laughs> Biblical worship will contribute to our going deeper. Okay. That's a benefit. I would also say this, biblical worship as we see in the lives of these wise men, another benefit is that it contributes to joy. 
Verse number 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It's like Matthew, under inspiration, couldn't come up with enough adjectives. With a heart of worship motivating these men, and then the next step in their search for Christ being revealed to them as they left Herod's palace, the response was rejoicing with exceeding great joy. Biblical worship contributes to our joy. The Bible makes it clear that it is the will of God that we have fullness of joy. I think about Psalm chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry and he brought me up also out of an horrible pit out of the miry clay set my feet upon a rock and establish my goings. Let me ask you a question. If that's happened to you, spiritually speaking, what is your response going to be? The psalmist said, He hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall hear it and see it. Pardon me, see it and shall fear and trust in the Lord. And again, we've already mentioned Psalm 100. Fullness of joy is God's will for us. The Lord inhabits the praises of His people. That is why praise and worship in the best sense of those terms needs to be a daily part of your life as a believer. You need to be singing. You need to be listening to good music, godly, God-honoring, Christ-exalting music. To let the strains of that, be it instrumental, be it vocal, be wafting through the house, through the vehicle, all day long, be saturating your souls with that. Why? Because God inhabits the praises of his people. He draws near. He dwells in a place where he is praised. Think about this as it relates to the history of our nation. Founded on, in so many ways, Bible principles. A hundred years ago, a man by the name of Roger Brabson, who was a, a business entrepreneur founded a college as well, a university. He was an educator. He was also something of a historian and an early, what we would call, consultant. He was so successful in business that he was summoned by the president of Argentina, South America, to come down and give him a set of advice. And the president of Argentina, when Mr. Brabson made his trip there 100 years ago, got to Argentina, the president of Argentina asked Mr. Brabson, he said, why do you think it is that though, generally speaking, North America and South America were discovered and settled at approximately the same time, why do you think it is that, uh, and, and having equal natural resources, why do you think it is that North America is so much further ahead than South America. And South America is just continually trying to catch up when it comes to economics and government and peace and so on. Why do you think that is? Mr. Brabson looked at the president, as the story goes, looked at the president of Argentina and said, well, obviously you've done some thinking on this. I'm curious why you're asking the question and what you think the answer is. Why North America has advanced more steadily and clearly than South America has. And South America has had all the struggles. And the president of Argentina is reputed to have said this. He said, because when the Spaniards from Europe came to South America, they were looking for gold. But when the pilgrims of Europe came to North America, they were looking for God.
When we seek God, good pleasure follows because at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And in his presence there is fullness of joy. When we seek pleasure for the sake of pleasure, let me just say this, trouble follows. Another benefit, and I need to hasten to the conclusion here, another benefit of worshiping the Lord, making it a priority, another area of profit, is that it assures the best investment of my earthly treasures. These guys come with gold. It was real gold. Frankincense and myrrh. And we'll talk more about the symbolism of these three gifts and what I believe these men may have understood at least to a degree. But they were investing earthly treasures, get this, in the eternal king. And so when we worship the Lord, it assures the best investment of our earthly treasures. We've said it before, we've heard it said, and I say it again. Money has one purpose, and that is to be a vehicle for doing the will of God. That's it. Money, where it's invested, tells where your heart is. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But what are we to do? Lay up our treasures in heaven. And so worship of Christ, one of the prophets is that it assures the best investment. I'm laying up my treasures in a place where there's no decay. And then finally, another profit or benefit of worshiping Christ, making it a priority is that it sharpens spiritual perception. These men, verse number 12, and being warned of God, after they had been into the presence of Christ, after they had worshipped Him, they're now headed back to the east. Verse number 12, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own journey another way. And by implication, I want us to understand this, that the closer you get to the Lord, the better you understand what He loves and what He doesn't love. The closer we get to the Lord, we understand better where He is leading and the paths that He would have us to go as opposed to paths He would not have us to follow. At a very practical and human level, I can say this, the better I get to know grace, the better I understand what she loves and doesn't love. And it determines choices that I make as it relates to my interaction with her and how I love her and show love to her. And so it is in our worship relationship with the Lord. The closer we get to the Lord, the better we understand Him and the more help that that will be to us when it comes to making value decisions. I close with this, and I want to be very careful with this illustration, and we'll finish. We live in a world of restaurants. Now, we eat out more now than we ever did when I was a boy. But it's just a part of life. Matter of fact, I would be shocked if there were someone in this room who hasn't at some point eaten out in a restaurant. Okay. Anybody at all? I'll put myself out on a limb here. Okay. And in a sit-down restaurant, all of us have a server or a waiter. How many of you have noticed there are different kinds of servers and waiters? 
Not just good ones and bad ones, but you got some in-betweener ones too, okay? Have you ever been served by a waiter who it was obvious they were only thinking about themselves? On one extreme, it's like this. What do you want? You ask them if there's some kind of exception, and they're like, I'll go ask. Something's not right, and you ask them, and they act like it's going to take an act of Congress in order to rectify the situation. Do you know what that is? That's a server who's thinking about who? You or themselves? There's another extreme, too, and that's the person who is so gushy it's overboard. And you're sitting here thinking, I think they're fishing for a good tip. They want to know your whole life story. They want to tell you their whole life story. You're like, I didn't ask for this. Just want my drink filled up, you know. Okay. They stand there, and you're thinking they, they want to become best friends. And you still get the sense, they're not here for me, they're here for themselves. They're in it for themselves. But then there's a good waiter. A good waiter, there's friendliness. It's very obvious. They want to meet your needs. You are the customer. I'm here to make sure that your experience at our restaurant is the best. And it's clearly about you as the customer, not about them as the server or the waiter. Your drink's half empty. You turn around. The next thing you know, it's filled up. You're like, where'd that come from? They're not interested in long conversations that gives and swaps life stories. They just want to make sure you're taken care of. Okay? Let me ask you, how does that motivate you as the customer to tip? Does that affect how you tip? By the way, let me say this. Christians should be the best tippers. Okay? <laughs> I'm not going to go off on a little rabbit trail here. Maybe I will for just a minute, but I'll catch him really fast. Okay? If you are a cheap tipper, shame, shame, shame. Okay? Now, I understand if it's a really bad waitress, but you know, you actually could maybe help them become better by giving them a good tip. Especially if you leave gospel tracks, you should be a good tipper. Okay. I know I'm preaching to the choir. But all that to say, a server, a waiter who isn't thinking about themselves, but is thinking about meeting the needs of the customer, taking care of the customer, just by natural course of how things work, they are going to get a good tip. In an infinitely more important way, you and I exist for the Lord. And we exist to serve Him, to please Him. And as we do, here's what's wonderful about our God. As we live for Him and not ourselves, do you know what He has done? He has attached these wonderful benefits to worship. The joy, the assurance of his presence, he's attached these wonderful benefits that when we worship him as he alone deserves to be worshiped, there's tremendous profit that God is attached to it that we can expect. I close with this. It's significant to me that the passage of Scripture in all the New Testament 
that has the highest concentration of the word worship. Anybody know where it is? John chapter number 4. The woman at the well. The highest concentration of the word worship in all the New Testament. John chapter number 4. I believe it's 10 times in that chapter. In Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, the word worship came up. And isn't it significant that in the context of worship, a woman was brought to an understanding of who Christ was, of her need of Christ as her sin bearer, and she came to saving faith in Christ, centering on the context and the subject of worship. Now let me tell you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, just like that woman at the well, John chapter number 4, even where the primary subject has been worship, I want you to know something. Jesus is your Savior. He paid your sin debt 2,000 years ago on an old rugged cross and offers you forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. If you need Jesus today, even in a message on worship, this is a prime location for you to trust Christ as Savior. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, again, the opportunity to look the example of these wise men. Last week, we saw them modeling the importance of making worship a priority. This week, we consider the prophet, the benefits that you've attached to worship when we worship you biblically. Lord, as we come to the conclusion of this service, I pray that believers will be doing business with you, be clinging to the benefits of worship desiring those as they make worship a priority in their lives. As we anticipate Christmas just around the corner, I pray that our activity of worship, the priority of it in our lives would raise to a new level. I pray for one or more here today that may not know Christ as Savior, that they would understand like that woman in John chapter number 4, that even in the discussion on worship, that they still need Christ as Savior. And He's their sin-bearing substitute, and through Him they can have assurance of eternal life through faith in Christ. So Lord, as we conclude this service, may we do business with You, I pray in Jesus' name.